I'm Moya Andrews, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Professor Larry Singel. Larry is the new dean of the College of Arts and Sciences on the Bloomington campus of Indiana University. Before coming to Indiana, he was a professor of economics and associate dean of social sciences at the University of Oregon. His research focuses on the role that education plays in labor market outcomes. He has also been a member of the editorial board of the Economics of Education Review, the leading journal in the economics of education. Larry, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I first of all want to ask you, is Larry your given name or is your real name Lawrence? No, my real name is Larry. My father was uh, the son of uh, Polish immigrants and uh, they did not know that Lawrence was uh, actually the formal name of Larry and so I go by Larry, Larry Jr., <laughs> my father's after my father and uh, I really am a Larry, I suppose, uh, even though sometimes I'd like to feel like I could be a Lawrence, a Larry is really probably appropriate. Well, we're we're glad to know that because we want to get to know you well today and to introduce you to our listening audience. And so tell us a little bit about where you're coming from. I know you're coming from Oregon, but uh, tell me how long you've been there and and a little bit about your life there. So um, so I've been at uh, the University of Oregon for 23 years. So this is a big transition for me. Um, uh, The University of Oregon was my first academic post um, after graduate school. And so I spent my entire career as a, both as a, an assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, and then in the dean's office um, at the University of Oregon. My wife talks about the move as being sort of the reverse Oregon Trail, and we're sort of <laughs> I'm moving back towards my roots because I was, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and so I'm actually returning back to where I was actually born. And that's nice. Why did you decide to leave a a really nice place like the University of Oregon and come to Bloomington, Indiana? The truth is it really had to do with the quality of IU. Oregon, as I I said before, Oregon and Indiana share a lot in common. And one of the things that uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about at Oregon was the quality of the faculty and looking at the National Research Council rankings. And so when I... uh, applied for the job and was being considered for the job, one of the things I, first things I looked at was the National Research Council rankings. And one of the things that was very impressive to me was that throughout the entire college, there was incredible strength across the faculty. And one of the things that's certainly true is when one becomes an administrator, it tends to put some pressure on your own research. You're going to be giving up some of what you do uh, in order to try to facilitate what others do. And Going to a place where you could potentially make a difference because there was the quality of faculty to, to do that was really important to me. And, uh, and so Indiana really did offer me an opportunity to come to a place and serve a faculty who uh, are excellent and that are doing f- both excellent research and excellent teaching. Uh, and and I, f- I felt like this was a place I could come and, and, and contribute. Well, that's wonderful because it sounds to me as though you will be focused on maintaining our tradition of excellence. And that, of course, is very important to all of us at IU. You mentioned your wife. Now, tell us a little bit about her because her uh, transition will be more important probably than yours. Absolutely. Um, We're a partnership 
very much so, and uh, so this was, decision was a joint one. And it's a big period of transition for my wife. So she um, worked in the high fashion industry uh, when before we moved to Oregon and moved her to Oregon where the high fashion industry does not exist. <laughs> so she ended up transitioning to um, a new life, and she ended up being a homemaker for a, a good deal of the time uh, that we were there. And uh, my my son and daughter will both be out of the household. When we move here, we'll be empty nesters. And so... This is an opportunity for change for all of us. <laughs> so she's uh, she's looking forward to coming and uh, and actually working with me. And uh, I think uh, this job uh, is something where it's really helpful to have somebody who's willing to partner with you and, and participate in events and represent the institution. And I think she's actually looking forward to doing that. Oh, well, we're certainly looking forward to meeting her. And I suppose... Where the town you came from is pretty similar in many ways to the town you're coming to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's a, it was a university town, just like just like here. Um, Eugene's a little bigger. It's a Eugene Springfield is about two hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred eighty thousand, perhaps. So it's a little bit bigger, but it's definitely the university is the biggest part of the community, and uh, and so. I, Truthfully, the communities are very similar. I, f- I felt very comfortable uh, both in terms of Bloomington itself and then the institution. Oregon and, and Indiana share a lot in common in terms of culture. So, um, they're, they're both the flagship institution in the state. They are liberal arts-dominated uh, type of institutions. We don't, have, we don't have a medical school. We don't have an engineering program, and so we share this very similar cultures, which is something that was actually important to me because I feel very comfortable here from the very beginning. And being a, a child of a faculty member, I'm sure that, that that plays a role too, that you're used to being in academic communities. Absolutely. I mean, I, we, we grew up in a, in a household where we sat with an encyclopedia around the table and discussed whatever was happening of the day, and we'd always get out the now the computer, but <laughs> when I was growing up, it was the encyclopedia and say, oh, well, let's talk about that, and we would bring it out. So it uh, feels good to be in that community. I'm very comfortable being here and being around fellow academics who share my perspectives. Well, we're very glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about your kids. You said they're both going to be out of the nest. Right. So my, my son actually goes to Carleton College. He's mm. a junior this, this year. He'll be a senior this coming here and, and then uh, my daughter is uh, going to be a freshman at Harvard uh, in this fall. So wonderful. So where I said we're we're in a position of transition where uh, it'll be just my wife and I. Well, I was going to ask you why now, but I can see to some extent why now. This is a good time for you both to move. It is actually. I mean, um, I think both my wife and I were having these discussions about when. Both of the children were out of the house. What what was next? And I think that this was an answer to what was next. <laughs> well, the new challenge about this life stage is is a, a good thing. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I mean, from a perspective, uh, my perspective, I think it's really, really important in life to continually seek out challenges, to try to broaden your horizons, to think about new things, and um, so this is really part of part of that, which is that. Uh, I, I love being an academic. I hope to still maintain my research. But this is something that is new and exciting. And my, my father was an administrator uh, at the University of Colorado. And so I, I'm, I'm familiar with what, what the task is. And I, I, it's a challenge I'm interested in trying to do. And you've also had, a, I'm sure, examples of people trying to balance 
the pressures of being an administrator with family life. Absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, part of the reason why I think that this is good timing is that uh, uh, I think it would have been hard to be a good parent and being involved as I wanted to be with the demands of being a dean. Uh, and so, in fact, uh, now that they're off on their own and uh, they'll be doing some things uh, without me, <laughs> I, I think it's a good time for me to, in fact, make that transition because I can dedicate the time I need to dedicate to do the job well. That's, that sounds reasonable. Uh, tell me a little bit about your housing situation. Have you sold your house in Oregon and bought right. a new house here? We, we have sold our house, and uh, we are in the process of building we found a builder that we very much like and a location we very much like. And uh, so we're taking the crazy step of actually building, and we're in the throes of it right now. And are you going to be renting while you are waiting so for the house? We'll be living in a, in a, a condo for, for eight to nine months while the house is being built. Well, that sounds like fun, too. It's a really fresh start. But it definitely is a catharsis to try to to part with. I just uh, uh, last week cleaned out my office, and I'd been in the office for 23 years. And it was actually quite challenging to sort of part with some of the things that had become my possessions for a long period of time. So uh, I finally gave up my uh, some of my notes for my uh, Ph.D. that uh, I'm unlikely – classes I'm unlikely to teach ever again. So <laughs> I think it was important to actually do that. Um, it's a different stage and a – in a different period of life, and I think I need to move forward. Well, there's, there's no doubt about it that it's very invigorating to have new challenges and to have a new space to inhabit. Now, what's going to happen, Larry, about your graduate students there? Are you going to continue to direct some of the students' dissertations? I know this is always an interesting thing when you go to a new job. Yeah, so I, I have one student that remains. I, you know, I've been in the dean's office for three years. When you stop teaching Ph.D. students, you tend to stop getting Ph.D. students. So I have one that remains, and uh, she will be going on the job market next year. And I'm desperately trying to get her to a stage where I'll feel comfortable uh, leaving her back in Oregon to finish. I, she has two other committee members who are very good, and I think we'll be able to help them. I actually will not be able to be the only chair on the committee any longer because uh, I, I won't be part of the University of Oregon. So, But I'll be her co-chair, and I still plan to, to work with her. We're actually writing three papers together as a, as a result of her dissertation. And so I hope to stay in touch and try to get these off. In fact, we have two papers already under submission. And, uh, now, is one of those papers the one I, I looked at that is about presidential searches? The this is the last one, is on looking at presidential searches. That's correct. Now, that's an interesting topic. Did the fact that you were engaged in a search for a deanship influence the, the selection of that topic? It, it's funny. You know, uh, I had the variety of things. It's funny how things arise out of academic research. So actually what motivated the beginning of it was I was actually um, – the chair of the search for the new dean at the University of Oregon. And I got to know the person who ran the search firm uh, pretty well uh, for that hire. That's actually how I ended up becoming, uh, in getting into administration was because uh, the one person the new dean knew <laughs> from at the University of Oregon was me, and so he asked me to serve as associate dean. Um, so uh, in talking to the person who ran the search uh, firm, I was talking about what were the big issues that were happening in in higher education with regard to search, and he and he talked about the fact that there uh, there was a big debate about sunshine laws. And in fact, when we were 
running the search, there was a, a real discussion from the faculty about when would they know who the candidates were. And in Oregon, you reveal the finalists, but you don't reveal people prior to that. But in other states, for example, in Florida, everyone is revealed from the very beginning. So I talked with him about um, what the potential impacts of those of those different types of requirements in terms of revelation, and and uh, so I, I became cu- I became curious about whether this in fact would affect um, who ended up being the leader of an institution. Mm-hmm. I've, I've actually been interested in who becomes leaders for a long period of time, and so this was something that sort of piqued my interest naturally. Um, one of my first papers I I wrote was actually on who be- who manages baseball teams. And discussing with my father around the the dinner table about people who his administrative positions and and what he saw, it, it, one of the things that appeared to be true was that in a lot of administrative positions, the people that become administrators are typically good but not great. And what I mean by that is that they often have a lot of particular skills that make them perhaps good administrators, but as academics. Uh, they typically were not the strongest academics that typically uh, ended up becoming administrators, and I wondered why that might be. Same thing was true in baseball. If you look at baseball managers, they tend to be good but not great. Now, you can always find exceptions. Pete Rose was a manager, but on average that was true, and one of the reasons why, uh, an economist would tell you, is there are opportunity costs to your choices, and the opportunity cost of uh, becoming an administrator is you give up your academic research, the opportunity cost of uh, becoming a baseball manager is you give up opportunities that you might do otherwise. And it turns out that if you're very, very good at something, it's relatively costly to, be- to become an administrator or become a baseball manager. And so, in fact, I found that to be true both for uh, baseball managers and, and academic administrators, that they tended to be more likely to become an administrator as their human capital depreciated. So that was a particular pattern. And timing to where, when people become administrators. And, and so, uh, but another interesting question would, around this would be, um, are there institutional factors that affect mm. who becomes a leader? And so that was what, what the Sunshine Laws were, was uh, is it the case that these types of uh, require, institutional requirements might affect who actually chooses to, to become in the pool of administrators and then uh, ultimately ends up leading an institution? And just yesterday, we actually f- finally began to get results out, and in fact, the answer is most definitely yes. In fact, these uh, types of processes affect who who turns out to 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 um, enter the pool to become administrators, and who ultimately gets the job. That's very interesting. And this l- a reluctant uh, candidate used to be most prized. I remember when I was a young academic. One never wanted a would-be administrator to look too eager. Now, has that changed, or is this still an aspect of this uh, privacy business about not wanting to be known as a candidate? What's interesting, I mean, and uh, these results are preliminary, Mm. so, (laughs) but um, there seemed to be an optimal amount of revelation, and as it turns out, from the part of a university, which, in fact, revealing finalists is actually a very healthy thing for institutions. And I think the rationale behind this is simply that you want someone who's going to make a reasonable, credible commitment to be, you know, they're genuinely interested in the post. And if you don't actually have to reveal until the very end, you're never really sure whether that person is committed to, in fact, wanting to have the post. 
Um, and so, I mean, I think that, that probably, as an academic, I don't think that's changed. I think leaders need to be servants first. And I think there's a good reason to doubt that uh, that the person is going to have that temperament if they're too eager to have the post. And so I think that's a healthy perspective that academics have. But at the same time, I think it's the job is becoming more and more professional in nature. Um, it's a very demanding job to lead a university. And, uh, and so there has to be some forethought. And one of the things that I, you know, I found in my research, uh, uh, one of my earlier papers actually looks at who ends up leading uh, uh, the best institutions in the country. Um, and um, it turns out that the choices that a person makes from the very beginning of their career are actually related to ultimately where they end up. They may not know, in fact, that those are the choices that they're making, but there are particular fields that are more likely to become presidents of institutions. Are these the fields in the social sciences the pe- where people have better people skills? They, they tend to be ones in which you develop people skills. They also, t- uh, you know, uh, I indicated this uh, somewhat earlier, uh, they tend to be uh, fields where they tend to go into it based on the timing of how fast their skills depreciate. So, for example, if you look at uh, mathematicians, for example, if they get into it, they tend to uh, get into it at a younger age because if you're absent from mathematics for even a short period of time, computer science, it's very hard to return. Mm. Whereas a historian gets better the older he gets. Absolutely. And so, in fact, you see very different profiles, in fact, of who enters. Uh, So uh, mathematicians are much much less likely to get in at a young age. But if they get in, they're much less likely to exit. Well, that's very interesting. Let's stop for a little while and Mm -hmm. have your first musical selection. Can you tell us why you chose this one? Centerfield by John Fogarty. I'm a very big baseball fan, always have been. Uh, It it really has a lot to do with um, the aesthetics of the game. You know, they've always been statisticians. They they tend to examine the... uh, Philosophically, <laughs> the, the the statistical aspects of the game are really important, and so I've always had sort of a deep affection for the game, and I've always uh, appreciated that notion of "put me in, coach, I'm ready to play." been speaking today with the new dean of the College of Arts and Sciences on the Bloomington campus, Professor Larry Singel. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
Larry, tell us a little bit about your background and the influences that shaped you when you were growing up that made you the person you are at this stage in your life. My uh, my last name is actually um, uh, one of those great traditions where um, uh, it was changed at Ellis Island. Um, it was a very uh, Slavic name, and uh, they uh, they changed it so they thought they sounded like they were coming from France. I think that they felt like that was sophisticated. <laughs> so it's actually not a. It's not actually. A, in fact, I don't believe there's another Singel in the uh, in the country other than my family members. It was simply something that was Americanized from. Sing- it was spelled in a very distinctly different way, and um, and it was Poland. Polish. Polish. And where in Poland were your ancestors from? Uh, the southern part of Poland. Um, they actually, the technically part of it, part of them are now actually from Slovakia. The, but when they left, it was part of Poland. Yes. <laughs> part of the world has changed a couple times. And since. when did they leave and come to the United States? It was, it was around the turn of the century. It was when a lot of the, the, the Eastern Europeans moved to the, the United States. And they went directly to Detroit? No, I think they started in New Jersey. I, I don't actually know that I f- understand the full history, but I believe they started in New Jersey and then moved to Cleveland, uh, in fact. And so he, uh, my, my grandfather worked in the steel mills in Cleveland. And then you were born in Detroit. I was born in Detroit. My, uh, my father uh, was from a family of nine brothers and sisters uh, in the middle, um, the only one who didn't have a biblical name. My uh, family was a very religious family. He uh, he was the first person in his family to go to college, first generation uh, to go to college. And he actually had no idea about really what he was doing. It was a wonderful story. He, um, he had decided when he was a, a junior in high school that he wanted to go um, and really had not prepared himself to go to college. Uh, the reason why he wanted to go was that there was a singing group uh, that had come from Eastern Nazarene College in Boston, and he saw these individuals sing uh, at his church, and he thought, oh, this just looks wonderful. I, this is something I want to do. His family was actually in a very bad state. Their house had burned down, and they were living in the chicken coop in the backyard. My. And uh, so, I mean, he was in a relatively difficult circumstances. His His father would hire him out as a laborer, and he was working for a firm that um, I'm not sure exactly what they made, but it was mechanical in nature. And the the person that owned this firm was a German immigrant, very tough man. And he he uh, walked into his office and he said, I need a raise. And apparently all the people who were around him uh, scurried to, to get out of the way because he was not someone that you would ask of. And he said, well, why do you need a raise? And he said, well, I'm going to go to college. The person... Did not give him a raise that day and uh, and asked him to, to leave. But when my dad was leaving to go off to college, he uh, showed up and he says he was off to college and the person gave him a check for the difference in his wages and says, this is for your college. That's a wonderful story. And uh, But he showed up to Eastern Nazarene College. He didn't apply. He didn't know any better. He, so he had never applied. And, and, uh, and the people at the admissions office was like uh, – we don't have you on the record so that we can't we can't let you in and fortunately it was very fortunate that you know this is a small liberal arts school he grew up in the nazarene church and sort of understood uh they understood this was a part of their service to the community and they actually let him in as a probationary student 
a story like that makes you realize how important it is to treat people as individuals. Absolutely. I mean, to me, the, one of the things that shaped who I am is really that story about my 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 father and his family. Because you know, we would go. I would go back to these family reunions, and he had nine brothers and sisters who also had many many children. So there were a lot of singles mm. <laughs> at these family reunions, and to observe the impact that education had on individuals' lives and the impact on their opportunities and their choices was really profound to me. And, and I mean, it was that really that of those events that really said, well, I really wanted to go on and study mm, that. That mm. was really what really drove me to want to be part of the higher education system and to understand, I think, why it's so important that uh, those opportunities exist for people like my family who were definitely from modest means. And what field did your father enter? So he became an economist. So I am a second-generation economist. Um, uh, he was an urban economist, and I think that was probably not a random event either. I mean, he grew up in, in a city uh, in, you know, in the ghetto of Cleveland, and I think that that had a profound effect on him and thinking about opportunities and choices that mm. people had and the way the city impacted his, his life. Um, so uh, I think it's not uncommon to observe those types of uh, uh, events in people's lives that lead and shape who they become. And he was obviously a very strong role model for you. Absolutely. And I mean, in, in fact, I mean, he was one of my, probably my first mentor. In and this. he'd walked the path. It was hard as a kid to ever have an excuse that you didn't have the opportunity to do something having seen what how he had gotten there and what he had to come through to get to it. So, And he was, you know, Depression-era child. He is not necessarily the uh, a person who would say that he's um, gentle. He wanted you to stand and pull up uh, from your own bootstraps. But uh, having seen that he had to do it, I think it was something that uh, I appreciated and mm. – and, uh, and, and learned from. And learned from. Now, know. what about your siblings? So I have uh, two brothers. I'm the oldest, firstborn. Do you think that uh, position in the family makes a difference? It probably does. Um, I, I think that uh, there are certain expectations that come from being the firstborn. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily – my parents would say that they ever implicitly tried to impose them on me, but I think you feel feel that. Um, so my, my brother, uh, uh, my middle brother is also an economist, <laughs> uh, but he, he works at the, the labs in New Mexico. And my other, my youngest brother actually lives in Carmel, Indiana. And oh, he works, how fortuitous. Yes, and he worked for Eli Lilly. So, so there are just three boys in your family. Three boys. And you've got a boy and a girl. That's correct. Well, that's very interesting. And when you were growing up, what, what other mentors did you have? I've been very fortunate over my life to have uh, mentors, and sometimes they come in places you don't even necessarily expect or, or think about. For example, uh, there's absolutely no doubt that in my, through my career, uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Oregon, uh, who ended up being the dean of arts and sciences for 15 years, we were co-authors and we worked together, and, and uh, I watched him in, through the 15 years of being dean uh, at the College of Arts and Sciences. And I learned a lot from him. Both, oh, I bet you did. <laughs> both from you know, as as an academic, I really he he sort of helped me think about the way in which problem to approach economic problems. Um, but he also helped me think about the academy and the role that economics can play in potentially helping making decisions in the academy. Uh, and so, I mean, he was a very he had a very profound effect on on mm. me. 
the person that I've worked with uh, the last three years, um, uh, Scott Coltrane, who's the dean of, of arts and sciences, he's one of those people who has a genuine affection for people. As a dean, you have to be tough sometimes. I mean, the, one of the words you have to have on, written on your forehead is no, because there are a lot of very good ideas out there. And in fact, the things that are most difficult, the decisions to make as a dean are those that are be choices between good things, right? There are a lot of good things that one can do. And his temperament was always impressed me. He he always takes people seriously. He always listens to them honestly. Uh, and when he says no, he says no uh, in a way that says, look, I understand that this is important, but here are the, ra- here are the rationale for why mm. I'm making the choices that I'm making. And it's not that your idea is not a good one or that it wouldn't be beneficial. It's a choice between – there are trade-offs and here are the trade-offs as I see them. And um, an economist is fond of saying there, there are no such thing as solutions, only trade-offs. And here are the trade-offs as I see them, and uh, and here's why I'm making this decision. So uh, uh, really important to sort of watch him and see him make those types of decisions. Um, I think uh, – I'm hoping that I'll be able to replicate some of that humanity that he's exhibited over that time. One of the things that you – know, going back to my research, they seem to be connected is that if you look at those people who were most successful in those positions, they tended to have positions prior to that where they were able to be mentored. And so uh, mentoring is a really important part of being a successful administrator, mm. seeing people and serving in various positions, serving as department head, serving as associate dean, I think are, are things that are that uh, provided me insights into the way in which uh, uh, these decisions have been made by other people who are smart and who mm-hmm. you respect. And, then, and being able to witness that is really important. And as you say, witness it where you see someone modeling certain behaviors because it's, it's all very well to talk about something theoretically. But when you have seen someone deal with something and watched the way they said what they said and the way they were attentive to the other person, those things become indelibly imprinted on your mind in a way that, that I think is very helpful. Absolutely. And, and not just seeing uh, uh, successes but also seeing failures, things that didn't work. Um, you asked me one of my mentors in sort of unexpected. In, in writing my dissertation, I had uh, worked very closely with my advisor, and uh, it was December of the year of that year. I'd gone on the job market, already gotten the job at the University of Oregon, and I felt like I was finished. And I gave my dissertation to uh, my other committee members, and one of my other committee members handed it back. You know, a week later, the first chapter completely marked in red. Mm with a copy of Strunk and White and a copy of a programming book for Monte Carlo studies and says, this dissertation is good enough, he says, but you've got time. You can make it better. And it was actually a profound uh, mm-hmm. a profound thing for mm-hmm. me in terms of he said, look, you, you've got several five or six months before you're going to actually be uh, be there. You need to be the best you can be when you get out there on the job market because it's for you. It's not for others. And so he really forced me to improve what I thought was finished. Yes. <laughs> but truthfully, it was something that, you know, as a, from a career perspective, really helped me. And as a mentor, I've, always, I've thought about that a lot, which is, you know, you're preparing them to go out and be the best they can be. And so it's really important that, that they understand the little details. And, and, and the people understand that they care enough to make you go the extra mile. Absolutely. It's important 
to 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 absolutely give your best and and he wasn't going to let me not and I, and as i said at the time i was unhappy it was an event that i think was uh, shaped me in uh, profoundly because i realized actually he was right yes have there been other people that have held your feet to the fire most definitely um my mother was very much one who very lovingly made sure that I did what I was supposed to do. My father really shaped my academic life and my intellectual life, but my mother always insisted uh, about my humanity side. And she taught you respect, obviously. She did. I'm not a patient person. And impatience can be a strength uh, in in certain circumstances, Um, but it can be a real weakness in others. Mm. And when I was impatient with other individuals, she always would remind me. How lucky you were. Well, I think it might be time for another music selection. Tell us a little bit about your Neil Diamond selection. I, I suppose this is keeping consistent with my baseball theme, but it's another, uh, you know, it's something that they play at baseball games. They always play it in the seventh inning uh, at the Red Sox Stadium. And uh, uh, to me, it sort of represents... Good times never felt so good. Uh, I think it's really important to sort of have that perspective and to be optimistic. And this is, to me, an optimistic song. Where it began I can't begin to knowing But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you Our guest today is Professor Larry Singel. Larry is the new dean of the College of Arts and Sciences on the Bloomington campus of Indiana University. Larry, what's so interesting to me is that you've had not only good mentors that have prepared you for this role that you're beginning, but your research also seems to prepare you in many ways. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research you've done on issues in higher education that would be relevant to this new job you're undertaking? I can always talk about my research. <laughs> I very much enjoy talking about what I've thought about over the years. It's funny sort of how I, how one gets into these types of things. So I, I'm a labor economist by training, and um, uh, we talked about one of my mentors, uh, Joe Stone, who was the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and was also an economist. And in 1989, the legislature at, at Oregon started a process of disinvestment in higher education. It was really driven by a ballot measure. There was a ballot measure that uh, cut property taxes in the state. That was the primary vehicle by which K through 12 and higher education was funded. And so we experienced dramatic budget cuts uh, as part of um, a part of this process. And we knew we were going to have to raise tuition. 
And and so Joe Stone, being an economist, uh, came to me and he said, well, let's look at how responsive students are going to be to a tuition uh, increase. And are there any things that we could potentially do to offset uh, those types of behaviors and, and natural responsiveness to an increase in tuition? And so the way that I started working on the economics of higher education was literally a practical problem was just to say, how responsive are students going to be and who's it going to impact most? And so I actually conducted a study looking at how responsive students were going to be to, in, to tuition increases. And when I started to study this, I realized there were really interesting questions in mm. higher education that a lot of the things that I had thought about it in terms of labor markets were present in higher education. And in particular, I was interested in, became interested in financial aid because we were going to raise tuition, but we needed to also then ensure that we maintained a class that had the appropriate amount of high-achieving students, that had the appropriate amount of diversity. Uh, and so we began to think about, well, how could we potentially discount tuition to appro- appropriately to those individuals we wanted to attract? And so we developed a dean scholarship program, and I was sort of on the ground floor of sort of looking at how these dean scholarships were uh, were developed. Well, that got me very fascinated then in, into uh, higher education, finance, and tuition setting in general. And so over the years, I've, I've conducted a number of studies that have looked at those types of issues. So for example, one of my papers, I got data for all Pell students in the United States over the last decade. And I was interested in how higher education policies like these tuition discounting were going to affect who goes to to school, and in particular for those people who are needy. And so I, I looked at how tuition discounting type policies, uh, for example, um, a number of states, Oregon is one of them, has a, a program called Oregon Pathways where they guarantee to meet all unmet need. Um, and there are a number of programs that are like that around the country. And so I was interested in did that affect the mix of students that were going mm. um, and interestingly enough, I mean, one of the things, oftentimes you come in with a particular expectation about how things are going to work mm-hmm. and the data tell you otherwise. And so one of the things that was interesting that, that came out of this particular study is that, in fact, these programs did not actually increase the number of, of needy students going to the school, but it did change the mix of those students mm. going. It, in fact, drew students from further away. And so what it did was allow those students who might have found it more difficult to to go to college, who were further away from the flagship institution, to take the risk to come. Mm. It was, in fact, an effective program, but not in the way in which I think the people envisioned that it would would be. So it was a surprise. Did it also help retention? Retention was something we were not able to do with that particular Mm. study, but we have looked at other Hmm. Types of uh, unfortunately, the the federal government wouldn't give wouldn't allow me to track these individuals over time. What a shame! <laughs> because that's so important to know. Absolutely, we engaged in negotiation with uh, the Department of Education for some time, and they were not willing because their their concern was that I could identify those individuals, and mm. and you know, FERPA regulations prevent you from being able to do that. So it was a, a legitimate concern, but mm. it did prevent me from tracking them. But one of the things I did find is that in fact these financial aid programs are important in terms of with regard to retention. They do tend to increase, increase it, although they increase it less than getting them in the door. These mm. are, they have a bigger impact uh, on getting them in the door than they do on retention. Uh, One thing we found in a study that was done here was that 
uh, we had the worst retention with women from small rural Indiana communities. And one of the reasons seemed to be that they all had a boyfriend back home, and they were overwhelmed by the size of the Bloomington campus. There's absolutely no doubt that, and this is something that actually is going to be important to me as dean, I think you need to create a culture of inclusion. And people come from different places. One of the things I think that's not fully understood uh, by legislatures uh, when they think about uh, higher education is that they really do want to develop a portfolio of institutions. It's okay to have a flagship institution. Sometimes that's a a bad word. They don't like to have one institution be distinctly different than the rest. But in fact, it's really important because there are certain people who are genuinely and ready and prepared to have this type of experience. And you want to make sure that your constituents are able to do that. And it's important that you get once you get them in the door that you find a way in which they can find a community. I'm reading a book right now. Actually, I was reading it on the plane called Making the Most of College. I bought it for my daughter. Mm. <laughs> it was written – I said, I said she's off to Harvard and this was written by a Harvard professor. And uh, I actually think I may uh, – this may be a book we're going to use in the college actually um, and, and distribute to our direct admits. It talks about the fact of finding community mm. and that was one of the things that you know, we, we sort of started here was that it's really important for someone uh, – he, he told about a story about a person who uh, had come to Harvard who was from uh, an island in the South Pacific. The only person in her family to go to, go to college, she was went from a very rural place to a very urban setting and within the first week she was already in, feeling uh, – greatly isolated and in trouble. And so this mentor sat down with her and says, what do you do? And, uh, and she and he says, well, do you play an instrument? Well, no. And he went through all these things and he was having difficulty doing it. And he, and he thought about it for a while and he says, I still want you to go and, and uh, try to play in the band. And she goes, well, I don't play an instrument. She goes, I know that. He says, but they have a large drum and, it, and the drum requires two people, one person to carry it and one person to play it. And you can carry the drum. Oh, what a nice idea. And she ended up participating in the community. This ended up being her community on the campus. And she ended up being very successful in getting through Harvard by developing this community and developing this community of friends. And so I think that's something that a large university like Indiana has to work to do because it is a big place. It is. Um, and so you need to find ways in which people can be plugged in. And and in the retention research, that's one of the things that they actually indicate is really most important. Money matters. It's not irrelevant, but it's not the only thing. And, in fact, community is a, mm -hmm. a very important thing. And the safety net. Yeah. The safety net here on the Bloomington campus has always been worked on a great deal. But allowing students many different opportunities to access what the safety net provides is always the trick, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. And so, I mean – I. You know, it's not as if I have ideas that haven't necessarily been thought of before, but I think it needs to be something where a dean indicates it's important, mm. right? I mean, a lot of times you can set the tone. There are other individuals on campus who are actually going to be in charge of implementing this. But it's something that's important to me. I really want people to come here and be successful. As I said, my father benefited immensely from a group of individuals that allowed him into an institution when he really necessarily wasn't qualified to be there and mentoring him through. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is an opportunity for you to pay back. And it's, it's absolutely an opportunity for me That's to pay true. back. So I, I think it's very important. Well, you know, Bloomington has always tried to be a nurturing community. 
Uh, but it's an ongoing process. One has to keep trying to work on this. And I, I mean, one of the things that is really important is, uh, I mean, just like mentors are important for students, they're important for faculty as well. And um, institutions make big investments in junior faculty. We're very vested in them being successful. And I think we owe it to the people who we hire. I mean, the standard usually with a, a review is that if they are, have an opportunity to be successful, if you can envision in the three years after you give them a contract renewal that they potentially could could get to the place where we want them to be, I think we have an obligation to to give them that opportunity to be able to get there. And it's good for the institution because it's really cost-effective. We, I said we invest a lot mm-hmm. in those young faculty members, and so it's it's important for the institution as well. Um, I mean, it's a shared investment. That's true. What about the state? Have you had experience with state funding cuts? Yes. Oregon, um, as I said, 1989, had the ballot measure. And so Oregon at the time was uh, received about 40% state funding. And uh, this year we are now at 5% state funding. Oh, my. Ouch. And so we've really had to learn how to uh, to be an institution that um, – receives relatively little state funding. And I think if you were to look at Indiana, Indiana is in the throes of beginning to move in in that direction. And I think actually all of higher education is in transition where they're going to, perhaps not fully rationally, but there's been a tendency of legislatures to view uh, higher education as really a private investment. For a long period of time, uh, legislatures paid for uh, a reasonable portion of college and, and thought of it as a public investment. And I think there's been an increasing view on the part of legislatures that this is a private investment and that that there's an an unwillingness to put money in it. I think some of that's short-sighted, and and the reason why it's short-sighted is because, in fact, uh, you know, what the the founding fathers would say is that, in fact, for a democracy to survive and be effective, it depends on having an educated populace. I think that's really an important thing to understand. Irrespective of that, I think there's going to be a movement towards increasing reductions in state funding for higher education. And so higher education is in transition about how does it position itself such that it can both um, meet the mission of the state. We are – Indiana, Oregon, those institutions really do have a mission irrespective of the amount of state funding they receive to serve the people of the state. It's an important part of the things that they do is part of the thing that makes the U.S. educational system actually the envy of the rest mm. of the world is because we have that mission. And so we're going to have to, to think about how can we maintain that mission in an environment where state funding is relatively modest. And we're going to have to use our resources creatively. Absolutely. And so I'm hoping that, I mean, one of the things that, you know, economists (laughs) spend a lot of time doing is thinking about how does one use resources creatively. And so, I mean, I really do think my my background in economics will potentially be uh, helpful in that. And, you know, you you talked about people who impact or um, affect you. I mean, one of the things, both my children are, are, are named after framers of the Constitution. I have this sort of I would have been a historian, I suppose, if uh, if I could have been. But, um, you know, so my daughter is named Madison and my son is named Thomas Alexander after Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And what really impressed me about those individuals was that they were 
people who took the academy were learned individuals and applied it in their own lives and in their own careers and the things that they did. And I'm really hoping that I can do the same. I've always admired them for that uh, approach, which is a scholarly applied academic view of how can I use what I know to, to, uh, to be successful. And, uh, and I think economics is actually a field that potentially lends itself to that. Well, there are a lot of things that are coalescing, and the stars look good, I think, <laughs> for the beginning of your tenure here as dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. The college is such a huge part of the Bloomington campus, and the college's success is going to shape the success of the entire university in the next years as it has in the past. So we look forward to having you at the helm. And I can see that you've had a lot of experiences that prepare you very well for the challenges that you will face. And I know that all of the university community wish you well. Now we'll have your last musical selection, which is Love Me Like a Rock by Paul Simon. Can you tell us why you chose this one? (laughs) One of the things uh, I do in my classes is actually... um, I use music, poetry, music clips, even artwork to demonstrate the economic points that I'm uh, that I'm trying to talk about. And so lyrics to me in music are often quite profound and the lyrics in in this um talks about a young individual growing up and and learning to to deal with the world around him and I and I think that uh, in many ways I'm starting a new career <laughs> and having to learn about the world around me. Uh, And it's a new world for me, and uh, I think the song sort of captures that. We've been speaking today with the new dean of the College of Arts and Sciences on the Bloomington campus, Professor Larry Singel. Larry, thank you for being with us. Thank you. This is Moya Andrews for Profiles, and thank you for listening. When I was a little boy, the devil called my name. I say now, who do? Who do you think you're fooling? I'm a consecrated boy. Singer in Sunday choir. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. 
Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.